We're starting a new series today called Bystander, and it's John and his journey with the rabbi from Nazareth. And we're going to talk about, you know, what John saw and what he recorded and what he got to be a part of in Jesus's life. Listen, I think this is for everybody that's in this room, which means if you've been coming here for a while and you've been following Jesus for a while, I think there's a chance to take some major steps in your faith. And if you're here and this is brand new and you don't know much of all this stuff, I think this is going to be super helpful. In fact, I was thinking about this. If any time in the service day when I'm speaking, you have a thought that you think, hey, the guy on stage has it all together and I don't, and I don't know if I should even be here, I need to tell you something. This morning I woke up, wake up, woke up, and I woke up kind of early as I normally do on Sunday mornings when it's still dark outside and um, trying to get ready. And my wife doesn't wake up quite as early as I wake up. Don't tell her I told you that. But she doesn't wake up quite as early as I wake up. So I'm trying to get all my stuff together and get out of the house so I can get here to church and get ready. And I, I put my socks on, and I'm like, gosh, these socks are so tight. I don't know why my socks are so tight. And um, about 30 minutes before the service started, I went down to tie my shoe, and I looked, and I said, I'll tell you why there's so tight because you put your wife's socks on instead of your own socks. And I just tell you that because I don't even have the right socks on. Although, okay, that's the only thing on my wife I'm wearing today. I don't want that to be confused in any other way, shape, or form. And you do you and I'll do me. Okay, so that's how we'll leave that. Anyway, we're journeying through this idea of what John saw as he watched Jesus interact with people and talk with people and do some amazing, amazing things. And then he decided to write it down so we could understand it years and years later. But before we jump into this, I want to talk about a tension that I think John, that wrote the Gospel of John, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, addresses um, really well, and it's some things we get confused in our culture, in our world, especially in the religious world. It's these two words right here, faith and believe. Now, no matter where you come from in your spiritual journey, most of us understand what faith and believe is, and just take Christianity out of this altogether, because you believe in stuff, and you have faith in stuff, even if you don't believe in God, right? And so today, you might buy something online. You might buy something on Amazon, and you're going to buy it because you believe that it's a good product. You're going to go to the website, you're going to look at the stars that's next to the name, and you're going to read the reviews, and when you're convinced it's a good product to buy, you're going to believe it. And the reason you're going to do that is we believe in every area of our life based on evidence, especially when it comes to non-religious things. I don't believe in things unless there's evidence. For instance, if I'm going to buy a parachute because I want to jump out of the plane for the very first time, I'm going to make sure I buy a parachute that's been packed well, built well, experts approve of it. Why? Because I'm going to jump out of a plane and I need to believe in my heart of hearts that it is going to work. I'm not going to you know, ask my high school buddy, you think this is going to work? Okay, I'll just give it a try. I need to know and I need to believe it's going to work. And that's true when it comes to what we buy, in our relationships, who we marry. We want to believe based on evidence that she or he is someone that we should marry. I mean, this is a huge deal. And this is the way we operate our lives. The other reason we believe, we believe based on our confidence in the person delivering the information. Don't we? I mean, I believe on base who's, who's telling me I should believe. I mean, go all the way back to your eighth grade math class when you know, your math teacher said eight times eight is 64. Now, for most of you, that was third grade. For me, that was eighth grade when I started to learn. I was a little behind in that area of my life. But because my math teacher was smart, way smarter than me when he said or she said eight times eight is 64, I just went, yeah, I believe that. 
and I didn't need to line up eight rows and eight rows and eight rows and put them all together and get to 64. I just trusted the source because I knew this person was smarter than me. And then, and then, you know, we kind of live our lives around that. And then sometimes in our lives, we'll get information that we believe or from trusted sources, and then we'll get new information, and it will change the way we see the world. For instance, years ago, people actually believed that smoking could be good for your lungs because it opened up your lungs and you could breathe better. And then information came along that said, no, smoking is very dangerous for you and it can really destroy your lungs. And so what you have to do is you have to take information you once believed and look at the information you now have and figure out what to do with it. For instance, my uh, grandfather, he believed because he was taught by trusted sources, if you drink two pots of coffee a day, you'll live to be 10 years longer. And he just drank two pots of coffee every day. He lived to be 94, so he was probably more right than wrong, right? And this is what we know. You drink some coffee per day, it's probably okay and good for you. Two pots is probably not so good, but that's how you have to deal with that. And that's how we live our lives. I have information that I believe I hear from trusted sources, and I found some new stuff out, and then i got to figure out what to do with it. And it takes time and thought, and we ask questions. And my friends, that's how belief and faith works in every other arena except for religion, and specifically Christianity. When it comes to religion, when it comes to Christianity, this is what we've experienced, a lot of us have. That religious faith and belief are often divorced from reason and confused with hope. Have you ever experienced this? Like in every other part of our world, we're like, I believe because there's evidence. And then when it comes to my faith or my belief, it's like, well, don't worry about reason. Don't ask any questions. Just nod your head and say, yes, yes, yes. But that's more like hope than it is belief and faith. And hope's a good thing. And I hope you have hope and have more hope in here today when you leave than when you came in. But this is what hope is. I, I hope he's going to show up. Even though he hasn't showed up the last two times. I hope she's going to pay her part of the rent. All the last six months she hasn't paid her rent. That's what I hope. I'm hope. I'm hope. I'm hope. Hope is not the same as belief and faith because we have evidence. And somehow in the Christian faith we have divorced belief from evidence. And it puts us in a very dangerous place in you know, what our hearts are grounded into. And if you were like me and you grew up in the church that I did, when you had questions or you had doubts or you had struggles, this is what they would tell you. Well, you just got to believe. Just believe. Well, I got a question. No, 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 don't ask questions. Just believe. I got doubts. No, you can't have doubts. Just believe. And then if you were in the kind of church that I was in, they would throw on this idea of brother. Well, you just got to believe, brother. And what do you say to that, right? Well, you, brother, okay, I'm just going to believe. And so I'm just going to believe. I'm going to be frustrated and I have questions and doubts, but I'm just going to believe. Or, or maybe you heard this, you just have to take it by faith, sister. Well, I'm not sure how tomorrow's going to work out. Something really bad has happened to our family. Just have faith, just have faith, just have faith. And there's a place to have faith, but sometimes you've got to have questions and some evidence and something to hang on to. It's a huge deal. Frank Turk, who's this debater and this guy that loves to have conversations with people that are either struggling or faith, or even this new group of what they call the new atheists. They'll, they'll get in discussion forums on college campuses. I, I love what Frank says. He says, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it 
in the first place. The reason so many people were talked out of Christianity because when they went to college, they got married, or, you know, they turned 50, and someone just talked them out of it. It's because they never were talked into it in the first place. And the way they became followers of Jesus or a Christian is because grandma said, hey, just believe in Jesus. Just believe and have faith. They went, okay, now just believe and have faith. Or a Sunday school teacher. And this is great. We love it when grandparents and Sunday school teachers do this. But they said, you just believe, just believe, just believe. And that's great. I just believe. Or a pastor like you know, me says, don't ask any questions. Just believe and everything will be fine. But they're never really talked into it with the evidence behind what we believe. And then that same individual goes off to college. And they take a master's level science class. And they can't answer the questions that challenge their faith. And they just kind of drift away. Or they read a book, and they read a book, they're always told, don't read those kind of books because they'll make you, you know, raise questions. But they run into the books, and they raise the books, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to drift away and talk myself out of it. Or they have a conversation with someone that is way smarter than them. And their faith just begins to crumble. And I think Frank is saying, hey, what would happen if we really had discussions about our faith? And we really looked into the evidence of where our faith comes from. Because if you said the apostle paul hey just believe and have faith and don't worry about evidence and he would look at you and go where in the world did you get that from or if you said to peter who's like the big deal in the church when it first started hey peter we don't need evidence or trusted sources for our faith we just believe he would look at you and go what are you kidding me there is so much evidence for what we believe why would you not investigate it hey jesus we're going to just believe with you in blind faith why would you do this that i gave you every reason do you have something firm to stand on in your lives? Where did you hear this whole idea about just do it by faith or believe it by faith, brother, and believe it by faith, sister? I never taught that. I never inspired you to do that. I gave you evidence for it. And I think those early church leaders would look at us and say, listen, don't let someone talk you out of something, but let yourself at least be talked about something that's deeper and firmer Foundation. I love the song we sang. I'll build my life on you, Jesus, because you're a firm foundation with reason, evidence, and support for the whole thing. Now, one of the reasons, one of the people we know brought us the story of Jesus is John. Let me tell you a little bit about John. John's full name was John Zebedeeson. And the place we get that name is John was called John, son of Zebedee. See if I get that right? And so I just decided to call him John Zebedee. D's son. Do you get that? Pretty cheeky, isn't it? I mean, I worked, yeah, pretty cheeky. Son of Zebedee, that's John. And John is someone that put his faith in Jesus. And John is someone that was called by Jesus to leave his family's lucrative fishing business. And John jumps out of a boat and he follows Jesus. And he watches Jesus to do these amazing Things. To the point, at the end of his life, he gives everything he has to write about Jesus and who Jesus is. And as he does this, he watches his friends, he watches his family die for their faith in this one that they followed. And John did all these amazing things by faith, but not because of faith. You see, when John left his family's fishing business, he didn't leave the boat because he had you know, the supreme faith. In Jesus. He didn't have anything in Jesus. He just knew he was a rabbi from Nazareth and he wanted to follow him. But as John followed Jesus, his faith grew and his confidence grew and it got stronger and stronger and stronger. And here's what you need to know about John because maybe this has happened to you. 
There were times that John and the other followers, they would believe and they would not believe. And they would believe and they would not believe. And they kept moving forward, moving forward, until ultimately, after the resurrection, they had full confidence in who Jesus was. But John didn't follow Jesus because of faith. He didn't jump out of the boat and say, I am absolutely convinced I know who Jesus is. It's not how the story goes. You've got to read it. He followed Jesus by faith, and his faith grew along the way. And that's exactly the way almost all of our faith works too. And so John's little document that he writes is called the Gospel of John. And the word gospel, if you ever hear that word, just simply means the good news. The good news of Jesus brought to you by John, who was there for it all, who was part of it all, watched his friends give their life. And so when he writes this, John's an old man. And almost all of his buddies are gone. Paul's gone and Peter's gone. James is gone. They're all, all dead except John. And I don't know if some friends you know, got John in a room and said, John, you're one of the last guys that saw the incredible things that Jesus did. You've got to write this down. And inspired by God's very spirit, he decides to document the life of Jesus that he was an eyewitness to. And he writes the Gospel of John. Now, if you go all the way back to your high school English class where you had to learn how to write thesis papers and you know, any kind of English paper, the teacher most likely asked you to write a purpose statement in the very beginning of the paper. You know, like the big idea, what's this whole paper all about? Well, John gives us his purpose statement or his big idea, not at the beginning of his document, but at the end of his document. So if you were to say, John, hey, what is your writing all about? Why did you do this? This is what he would say. John chapter 20, verse 30. He said, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, I wrote down some of the things that Jesus did that were amazing, but there were lots, lots more. I wrote some things down that when he did them, I could not believe it, but there was lots more than that. I wrote down some things that Jesus said that were so inspirational and so on point and so like truthful, but he said a whole lot more. In fact, if I would have written down everything that Jesus said and everything Jesus did, there would not be enough paper in the world to get it down on. I just wanted to document some very specific things. Well, John, why did you write those things? He would say, these are written that you might believe. But not believe, brother, because you're just supposed to believe, because, but you would read them, and 2,000 years later, sitting in a church in Van Wert, Ohio, you'd go, there's something that I can put my trust in. There's evidence, there's strength, there's power, there's confidence in it. I want you to believe that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Messiah just simply means this, the Savior of the world your Savior, my Savior, that there could be forgiveness of sin and our slates could be clean and we could approach God in a right, perfect way. It's amazing. Well, John, what happens when we do that? Look at this purpose he writes. The Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life forever. Life eternal. But not just after you die, that you can have life today knowing that your heavenly Father holds your life in his hands. It's a powerful idea. And John would say, I was so convinced by what I saw, I want you to be convinced by the same thing. And I just want to pass this on. So as we read through this over the next six or seven weeks, because this series is going to take us all the way to Easter, what you're going to see is John talk about events 
He's not talking about signs and evidence and believe that's and trust in. And the pattern he writes often is, hey, Jesus was part of events, and they're pretty cool events. But more than that, there were signs. And these signs that he did gave evidence, and the evidence made us really understand that we could believe that. I saw these signs, and I could believe that, but I didn't want you to stop and believe that. I want you to believe that to turn into trust in. That you would be so convinced that you wouldn't just believe, but you would trust. That you would say, all right, Jesus, this is crazy, but I'm going to trust you with my life. And remember, these are men and women that gave their very lives for what they trusted in. That started off with events that John talks about. Now, as you walk through John's gospel, there there are essentially seven signs that he writes about. And we're going to cover those seven signs over the next seven weeks, all the way up to Easter. And this is a big deal, and I just want to talk about this for a second before we jump in to the text this morning. You see, as we read them, there's a propensity for us to think all about the miracles. Because miracles are super cool, and you can get enamored by miracles. And then, you know, if you've ever part of a church like this, it's all about miracles. And let's see another miracle, and let's see another wondrous thing, and let's conjure some stuff up. If you've ever been part of that church, it can get a little strange, and we're not going to go there. I think John's argument is I'm not talking about miracles. I'm talking about signs. Signs that point to the one who did the miracles. You see, miracles just are about miracles. Miracles about just, wow, can you believe that happened? That's amazing. Now, what signs do is they point to the one that's doing it. And Jesus did some very specific things to prove that who he was, who he said he was. It's not like he woke up and just did random miracles for random people so people would clap and applause and take up an offering. We don't need more of that. Jesus did these things, according to John, so you would believe that it would be a sign that Jesus is who he says he is. And the very first sign that Jesus did according to to John as he turned water into wine. We're going to look at the story today. Now, this is fascinating because when John's an old man and he introduces this story, and you'll see this, he thought this story was so famous amongst people that he didn't even explain the miracle because everybody in the day that John wrote this was talking about it. They knew about it. But this is where John launched the signs of Jesus. And here we go. He writes in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. Now, this is really interesting. So Mary, Jesus' mom, is at this wedding celebration. And apparently, she's in charge of catering. She's in charge of hosting. She's in charge of the food. So she plays a fairly important role in this wedding ceremony. And I love this Dick's part. It says there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I think this is fascinating. Why would you invite Jesus, a rabbi from Nazareth, to your wedding? Now, maybe because he was becoming famous. They wanted a celebrity there. This is what I kind of think. I think people love to have Jesus around. I really do. I think people enjoyed when Jesus showed up because Jesus loved people, and people loved Jesus even though they were not alike most of the time. He just loved everybody. So now Jesus is hanging out at this wedding celebration. And this is where we're introduced to an incredible problem. And this would have been a problem in today's wedding ceremony, but it was really a problem in a ceremony 
2,000 years ago. This is what John tells us. He says, when the wine was gone, and oh my gosh, pause for a minute. We've got a major problem, right? You can just feel the tension like, oh no, the wine is gone. For some of you, you just would have went home right then and right there. We're not hanging around anymore. When the wine was gone, I mean, I think John just probably smiled. Oh, that was such a tense moment. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, now, you need to know this if you don't, that you know today's age, we have a wedding, and that following the wedding, there's usually some kind of celebration, um, yeah, reception. And there's a party that goes on for two, three, four, five hours. Well, in the Jewish custom, someone would get married, and it would not be a day. And it would not be three days. Sometimes it was five, six, seven days. I mean, these guys knew how to throw a party. And people would come, and they would camp out, and they would just celebrate and celebrate and celebrate. Now, imagine your daughter gets married, and they run out of potatoes at the reception. Not such a big deal, right? They run out of bread. We can cover that. But all the refreshments are gone. Remember, you can't really drink water back in this day because water was hard to purify and keep purified. And now we don't have any refreshments. I mean, we have a major problem. There's embarrassment, and, you know, Mary's in charge. And she thinks, what do I do? I don't have any more options. I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to ask Jesus. And can you imagine what it was like for Mary growing up with Jesus? Hey, Jesus, we're out of bread. Would you mind going to the grocery store? Better yet, how about you just conjure up some bread? I don't know if that happened, but wouldn't that have been awesome? You know, just make something happen. And so she knows the only one she can turn to in this moment where there are no other options is Jesus who's already there. She's like, so Jesus, I need you to do something. I need you to intervene. And then Jesus says something that I would not suggest any man use in this place, either to your wife or to your mama. He looks at her and he goes, woman, that's what he says, woman. Now, it feels a little abrupt, but when you go all the way back to the original language, he's not really saying woman the way we would say. He goes super, super formal. And he said, what he's saying is like, my lady. Because he can't go like, mom, right? Mom, I don't want to do that. Mom, he says, my lady. It's, it's interesting. I don't know, what, you know how they interacted, but something special feels like it's happening here. My lady, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. I have not come to save weddings. I've come to save the world, Mom. I've not come to save weddings. I've come to save the world. I've come to save people, not receptions. This is not my gig I'm planning on showing up at. It made me think of years ago when I worked with students a long time ago. Um, all student guys should know how to play the guitar, so I learned three or four chords on the guitar, and I could sing four songs really badly, right? So I'm hanging out with my mom at her house over a weekend vacation, and she says, hey, would you come and play your guitar at our Christian women's Bible study? And, uh, you know, who wants to do that? But I'm like, no, Mom. And she's like, oh, come on, Maddie. Because I was like, Maddie, come on, Maddie. Come and do that. And I'm like, okay, Mom. And I showed up, and I played terribly, but these nice Christian women all sang along. You know, it was like kumbaya. I mean, I'm jamming out to it. And, and I would never have done that except for the person that was asking me, because when your mama asks you to do something like that, you usually do what your mama asks. You know, that's kind of our gig. And I don't know how this worked with Jesus and Mary, but in light of who asked him, he decided I'm going to respond to her. And this is what mama says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. 
Because there's something very special about this young man. Now, I love the thought, thought of do whatever he says because, you know, if it was me and I was Jesus, I would have done something big. I'd like bring all the blind people in, bring all the lame people in, bring me a dead body. I'm going to raise them back to life. I'm going to make them see. I'm going to make them walk. The question I would ask is why does Jesus pick this miracle, this sign to do as his first sign? And I wonder when, if John, as an old man, is writing about it again, he's smiling ear from ear because looking back, he can, he can see looking back what he couldn't see in the moment. That what he's about to do was the perfect sign to do for people. Not in the moment, but for people like us thousands of years later that will be trying to figure out how do we put our full trust in Jesus as our Savior. This is what he does. John says, nearby stood six water jars, big water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So imagine six of these things. They each hold 30 gallons of water. They were enormous, and each of these barrels of em- that were empty represented something from the Jewish faith from the Jewish covenant between the Jewish people and God, which was a beautiful, perfect covenant. You see, what would happen is if you were a Jewish person, this was a rich family that this reception you know, that was at the house of. They had these big vats, and when they had religious ceremonies or religious moments, they were required to wash their hands in this water. And in other more you know, serious moments, they were required to wash all the way up to their elbows, sometimes their shoulders, and sometimes their entire body by these special vats of water. It was called being ceremonially clean. And there was all these sophisticated hoops you had to jump through to be just okay to approach God in any way, shape, or form. And these empty water drawers represent this covenant. It was incredible. It was beautiful. It was perfect, but it was temporary and it had a timer on it because something new was about to happen and they would be the perfect icon for Jesus to use to illustrate what he was going to do on the planet so Jesus points to these jars and Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water so they are filled to the brim And again, because he wanted to point out something he was going to do brand new F.F. Bruce A British theologian says this about the story. He says, The water provided for purification is laid down by the Jewish law and the custom that stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony. Think about that. Jesus points to these big empty jars and says, Fill them with water. They point to everything that was in the past, everything that God had done to get them to this point with the Jewish people. And it was sophisticated, and it was difficult, and it was complicated, and it was not working real well with the current Jewish people because so many of them had all but walked away from their faith. Maybe that's why the jars were empty. I'm not sure. But it pointed to what had got them there, and it was important. It was beautiful. But F.F. Bruce says, which Christ was to replace with something much, much better. And again, John's writing this story down. He smiles because in the moment he didn't know it, but Jesus was illustrating. This is what got you here, but this is what, can't, what cannot get you to where you need to go. And I'm going to replace those with me. Story goes on. Then he told them, 
Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. This is like the head host who decided who got what to drink and when they got to drink, he was in charge. They did so, goes on. And the master of the banquet tasted, and I love how John writes this. He, notice what he says, he tasted the water. Now John knew this story was so popular, he doesn't even describe the miracle or the sign that happened. He just assumed people already knew. And if you didn't know the story, you would read this and you would think, this master ceremony, he took the ladle or whatever was poured in and he tasted it. And you're like, no, 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 don't drink that. For one, you can't just drink raw water without purifying it somehow. It was so dirty back in that day. And two, he's going to taste water and he's going to be irate. We can't serve people water. Are you kidding me? Stop. He tasted the water. I love how he puts this. He tasted the water that had been turned into wine. The sign has happened. Jesus has arrived. The kingdom of God is here and the drinks are on the house. It's an old line from a preacher years ago. It goes on. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom, like, hey, man, get over here. And he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That is code for they're a little drunk so they don't really care. But you have saved the best till now. It is the perfect illustration of what Jesus came to this world to do. The best way I could illustrate this and Hopefully this connects with you. I brought two bottles of wine from my very meager small wine collection I have in my house. And uh, this one's wrapped up. I unwrapped it in the first service, so it's a little bit messy. This is a relatively cheap bottle of Apothic red wine, which isn't bad, but it's cheap. You can get it for about $7. And it's what you would serve, according to the head host, at the end. And the reason you would serve this is no one can tell it's cheap. Now, I thought about, I thought about for my cheap wine, bringing out some Boone's Farm or uh, maybe some Mad Dog. And, and so somebody's going to ask me, hey, Matt, is drinking wine a sin? And I'm going to say no, unless it's Boone's Farm or Mad Dog. Do not do that. That ain't right. You're living on the edge. Okay, so certainly don't serve that to anybody. But you can pick this up for about $7. This is what the Brown family would normally buy if they were buying it themselves. This is just what it is. It's the cheap wine. Now, this is a bottle of wine that was given to me from a friend. It's called Quintessa. This, my friends, is a $200 bottle of wine. Between services, I had to hide it because I didn't want the bass player going and popping it and having any between services. Because you know he would if you know where you know. Anyway. Now, here's the illustration. This is so beautiful. The head of the banquet goes, what you do is you bring this out first and you serve it because everybody will be impressed and it's so good and it's so tasty and it's made so well. This is so expensive. I would never, ever buy this myself. This was given to me. It's the only reason I have this in my possession. It was given to me. 
I would bring this out first and give everybody a half ounce and everybody taste it and just savor it and don't, you know, just be really careful. It is so expensive. And then when you've had a little bit of this, we'll ease this in. And Jesus is like, no, nah, that's not how it goes. See, this represents what you've had. It's good and it's tasty and it's worth something and it got you here. But I've arrived. I'm here. And I'm going to pour myself out and it's going to feel wasteful because everybody's had a whole lot of this and a lot worse. And it's going to feel a little opulent because you wouldn't think you should waste something this precious, especially me, Jesus would say, on a bunch of people that are sinful, that are spiritually drunk, that are spiritually lost, that are inebriated in their clarity. But I love those people. And this is what you've had. And today I'm here to tell you this is where we're going. And it's the best you've ever had. And I've come for the world that needs it. In another place, Jesus said, I've come not to save the healthy. I've come to save the sick, the inebriated, the broken, the sinful. And this is me. It is the perfect illustration, perfect illustration for Jesus to come on the scene of the world to say who he was. Now, um, you may be here today and you may be just a little freaked out if you come from a you know, Christian background, a religious background that we're talking about wine. In fact, the fact that I said that uh, I have this in my house, you may consider not coming back to church again. That's okay. Don't send me an email. I'm not going to respond to it. I promise you. I just would say to you, if you're that uptight about it, um, just know that Jesus came to uncomplicate all the rules and the hoops we're trying to jump through to make ourselves okay. He came to bring you freedom from the law of sin and death. So live in some freedom, right? Now, because Jesus decided to come and bring freedom, if something like this causes you to be a slave to it, and this be your master and take you down roads that you shouldn't go, don't let it be your master because you don't want that to happen either. Now, I was going to do this just because I thought it would be cheeky and I would rile up some feathers. I thought about opening this bottle up and pouring myself a, a glass and drinking it in front of you just to make some of you envy and some of you ticked off at me because that's always what I like to do. Um, <laughs> But here, here's it. I can't bring myself to open up a $200 bottle of wine, so I think I'm going to sell it on eBay this week and see how much I can get for it. So anyway, anyway, so the person that gave it to me, thanks for that. I appreciate this. So here's the whole point of the story. This whole thing is more than a miracle. It's more than a miracle. It's more than just something you get enamored with. It's more than that. This was a sign to believe in. And a sign to sink your, your heart into and hang on with both hands. So John starts to wrap this whole story up to get us finished up today. He said, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Because in that moment, we went, oh my gosh, we've just seen a little bit of God's glory. And his disciples believed his disciples saw it, and John would say, I, I started to believe that day. Not perfectly, because then I kind of didn't believe, then I did believe. Remember, that whole thing kept happening. But I started to believe. I started to have some faith 
in Jesus that day. And I hope you do too. And if you said, John, well, why did you believe? He would say, because there was a reason to believe. There was a reason to believe. And to tie this story all up, we're told that after he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, because Jesus had other brothers, because Mary had other children, there they stayed for a few days. Now again, if you ask John, hey John, why did you believe? Why did you believe? He said, because we were part of seeing something. We saw Jesus do these things and we believed because there's evidence. Now here's the interesting part, and you may have put this together in your brain as you listen today. John came to faith by seeing. Most of us here today would come to faith through hearing. And hearing the stories that John wrote down and hearing the stories that he saw. I need to look at my phone because I can't quite make out the back screen. I don't want to keep here longer than we promised. So you may say, no, Matt, I, I, back up just a second. Back up just a second. I came to faith through seeing. I saw something so amazing once upon a time in my own life that I decided to believe in Jesus. And that's totally fine. But for most of us, and this is okay, we're going to come to faith by hearing the gospel story of Jesus. And I want you to have faith in what you hear and who told us about the Savior of the world. And here's what you need to know. John was so convinced. He was so absolutely convinced that him and his friends, they gave up their lives. They were in prison. They lost, you know, they literally lost their heads off their shoulders. They were crucified. They were beaten. They were robbed along with hundreds and thousands of other people that followed Jesus. Not because of some fairy tale where somebody going, you just got to have faith. They did that and they followed because they saw there was evidence to the Savior of the world. To the point that John would write this amazing thing in his little document about Jesus. He said, the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. And when John says this, he says it a little different than most of us read it. Because when we read it, we think God came and he dwelled among us, which is somewhat true. But when John writes this, his context is Jesus came and he dwelt with like the 12 of us. Or the 50 of us. He dwelt like with us. He's talking about this in the first person in an in a experience that he had. I was so convinced because God dwelt with me in the flesh. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I believed it so much. I was convinced he stood upon me. I, I knew John the Baptist, that crazy, wild-eyed guy, and he stood on the banks of the Jordan River, and he pointed at Jesus, and he was so convinced. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were convinced. Hey, John, why'd you write all this stuff down? These things are written that you may believe, and I may believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have huh, life in his name. My friends, I want you to believe. I want to believe a rock-solid, firm foundation kind of faith because of the evidence and the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. I want you to come back next week and the week after because we're going to journey through this together. You can ask all your questions and have all your doubts. But I think we owe it to ourselves to make sure we know all the evidence of who 
Jesus was. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that as an old man, John wrote this stuff down that we could have it, read it, go back over it, and that Jesus, you, you gave us things to hang our hat on of who you were and what you did, and that there were eyewitnesses to it. I pray that you'd lead us, for some, to faith, and others, a deeper faith, and maybe for some people today, a brand new faith because they decide to put their full trust in you. Thanks for your love and thanks for coming and dwelling among us all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.